This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Prostate cancer is a very common malignancy in men, second only to skin cancer. Despite the fact that it's one of our more treatable malignancies, it remains the second leading cause of cancer deaths in men. When diagnosed early, it has an excellent prognosis. The five-year survival rate approaches 100% in those with local or regional disease. Although screening for prostate cancer is available, the use of these screening tests has been somewhat controversial and recommendations regarding its use confusing. To help us sort out prostate cancer screening, we have as our guest today Dr. Mitchell Humphreys, Chair of the Department of Urology at Mayo Clinic Arizona and Dean of the Mayo Clinic School of Continuous Professional Development. Thanks for joining us today, Mitch. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, let's start out by talking about PSA. That's been on uh, everybody's radar screen because it's still difficult to know how we're supposed to use that test. What is PSA and where does it come from? So it's a great question. So PSA is essentially a serine protease of the calcarine family. It's produced by both normal and neoplastic prostate epithelial cells but it's also found in minimal amounts in other organs, such as the liver, pancreas, salivary glands, and the breast, even in females. The whole purpose of PSA is to cleave portions of the semen to liquefy it, which is important in um, fertilization or reproduction. When we think about PSA, the half-life is anywhere from 2.2 to 3.5 days, and it does not vary during the day. However, when we talk about PSA, it is androgen um, dependent. The confusing part about PSA is that it's not just one enzyme. When we talk about uh, prostate-specific antigen, um, it includes a whole family of it. So to really understand it, it's really produced as a pro-enzyme called pro-PSA by the secretory cells of the prostate, where it's then put into the lumen of the prostate, where a peptide is subsequently removed to create what we consider active PSA, and that's the functional PSA. Um, This enzyme then undergoes proteolysis, and it generates an inactive form of PSA, which can enter the bloodstream and circulate in an unbound state, which is typically referred to as free PSA. Alternatively, active PSA can also enter the circulation where it tends to be bound by proteins um, such as alpha-1 antichemotrypsin, which is the most common one, but it can also be complex to alpha-2 microglobulin. And I go down this pathway not to confuse the issue, but to explain a little bit more about PSA and its various isoforms and how they can be used. So what I mean is when we think of prostate cancer, what happens is because of that cellular proliferation in the prostate, those prostate glands tend to lose their basal cells with disruption of the basement membrane. So what happens is more pro-PSA and truncated forms have direct access to the circulation and more PSA is leaked into the blood. This is kind of the principle behind the free to total bound PSA ratios that we can talk talk about a little bit later. But essentially, the higher the free PSA ratio, and remember when I say free, that's kind of the inactive form of 
PSA, um, then that's the more mature deactivation. It's more reflective of normal BPH and prostate tissue versus a low free PSA. So you're getting more of the active, the pro, the truncated forms of PSA, which is more reflective of cancer and overproduction of PSA. So that's one of the tests that you can use to provide clarity to PSA. Getting a PSA and free PSA ratio, if that ratio is low, higher risk that, that elevated PSA is due to cancer. If that ratio is high, the chance that that PSA is elevated due to benign cause. When was, when was the PSA introduced as a screening test for prostate cancer? And then what happened as a result of its introduction in terms of how many prostate cancers we found? So PSA actually has quite an interesting history associated with it. It was first discovered in semen in 1966, and it actually started its life as a forensic test by law enforcement in the cases of uh, suspected uh, sexual assault. Um, it was first discovered in the blood in approximately 1979, and it was first used to pro- screen for prostate cancer not until 1987. Um, and since then, the FDA approved it as a screening tool in 1994. Since it's been used as a screening tool, what we've seen is we're detecting prostate cancer in an earlier stage, Cancers detected by PSA are more likely to be organ-confined and treatable, and PSA detects prostate cancer an average of 6 to 13 years before it would otherwise be clinically apparent. So from what you're saying, it sounds like PSA is a pretty effective screening test. Well, it is, but there's a complex answer to that, and it depends on how you use it. Are you looking at it from an individual standpoint, or are you looking at it from a healthcare macroeconomic standpoint? And I think any time we talk about a screening test, we really have to talk about what is our goal. And that's essentially to detect the disease before it becomes clinically relevant or evident so that we have the ability to intervene before it can have an impact on somebody's life. And to meet the demands of a screening test, it has to have high sensitivity or a high chance of detecting disease while missing very few cases. It needs to have high specificity or not falsely diagnosing disease when it's not present. It has to be reproducible, reliable, safe, convenient, inexpensive, uh, and it must lead to a treatment that improves a patient's quality of life or extends their life. So when we think about PSA, it is very convenient, inexpensive, generally relies on just a blood sample, and there's a general belief that if you find cancer early, you can treat it early, uh, and so there is advantage. Where the controversy really exists, is around sensitivity and specificity and what happens next. PSA cannot detect cancer itself, but it basically stratifies and tells us which patients need biopsies. Biopsies are not as benign as detecting a blood test. It requires biopsying the prostate or even imaging. And there's anxiety associated with that. There's complications associated with that. And so that's where a lot of the controversy exists. Um, And I think when we talk about PSA screening, we have to really look and see what the government has done in regard. You know, there's an organization, the United States Preventative Service Task Force, USPSTF, and they tell us what we should do for all screening, colon screening, breast cancer screening, prostate cancer screening. And a couple years ago, they came out with a recommendation that you should not do PSA screening. And the reason they came up with this is because there's been two randomized trials regarding PSA screening, the first of which was a U.S. trial 
called the PLCO trial, the Prostate Lung Colorectal Ovarian Cancer Screening Trial. This was a U.S. trial. It was approximately 76,000 men aged 55 to 75, and they were randomized to either routine screening, a PSA once a year, or what's called usual care. So patients could have PSA screening if they wanted it. And what they showed is that in the screened group, in that group A, only approximately 85% of them underwent screening. And unfortunately, 52% of the usual care group had PSA screening. And at the end of their study period, um, what they showed is that the PSA screening group had 22% more cases of prostate cancer detected, but this did not reach statistical significance. Um, really, if you think about this study, it compared a screened population mostly to an opportunistic screened population. So it didn't really answer that question. And the fact that the um, study group was contaminated because 44% of men had their PSA tested prior to even entering the group, uh, study shows that there were some methodological problems with that particular study. But that is what the United Services or United States Preventive Service Task Force based their recommendations on when they gave it a grade D recommendation. There's been other studies, actually larger studies. There was the ERSDP study, which was the European randomized study for screening of prostate cancer. It was 180,000 men, and what they did is they routinely screened patients with PSA every four years versus no PSA screening at all. And in their nine-year data, they found a reduced risk of death from prostate cancer by 20%. That's significant. And in their recent uh, publication where they just released their 13-year data, they increased the cancer death rate reduction to 27%. So in other words, 781 men had to be screened to prevent one death, and 27 men had to be diagnosed with prostate cancer to prevent one death. Those are pretty profound numbers uh, where it really shows the value of screening and the impact of disease. There's been other studies such as the Gothenburg trial, um, which screened for PSA, and they reduced prostate cancer death by 40%. And there's several other um, trials that should be maturing in the next couple of years, such as the PIVOT trial. Um, there's also a PROTECT trial coming out of Britain and a Japanese prostate cancer screening trial that should add further light to the conversation. But when you look at all this data together, um, there was a Prostate Cancer World Congress consensus uh, in 2013 that just said for men aged 50 to 69, there's level one evidence demonstrating that PSA testing reduces prostate cancer-specific mortality and the incidence of metastatic disease. And if anybody has ever treated somebody with metastatic prostate cancer, it's not a not a nice way to go. And if anybody remembers any patients prior to the PSA era when we had acid phosphatase and we found late-stage disease, uh, we've completely changed the disease course. I do recall those patients, and they were not a pretty sight. They, uh, they had a great deal of bone pain, spinal stenosis, all kinds of problems. Attend the Mayo Clinic Healthcare Leader Intensive, offered three times in 2019, March, June, and November. Gain insights into the operations of an integrated healthcare practice, learn leadership and administrative skills that can be used at your organization, 
and discover the best practices that have established Mayo Clinic as a trusted healthcare provider. Registration is open. For more details, visit ce.mayo.edu. Join us here weekly at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. All right, let's talk a little bit about the problems with the PSA specificity. Um, I had a patient last summer who's ha- who'd had a, several PSAs done in the past, usually uh, been around 1.0, and this year's came back over 20. And I suspected there was something unusual, not specifically prostate cancer, but on further questioning, turns out he just went on a five-day bike trip. And when we rechecked him after uh, avoiding his bicycle, it went right back down to normal. What are some other reasons the PSA can go up unrelated to prostate cancer? Yeah, well, you're exactly right. PSA um, does have its limitations, and there's other reasons that the PSA can be elevated. Um, One thing, BPH can cause an elevated PSA, bigger prostates produce more PSA. Inflammation infections such as prostatitis can cause an increased PSA. Urinary tract infections can cause an increased PSA. Prostate biopsies or any prostate surgery or if the urinary tract has been instrumented either with a fully catheter or anything else will cause an increase in PSA. Generally, as we age, PSA increases as well. And not to get too far into the weeds, but there's certain imaging that can cause false elevations of PSA, such as with the prostate scan and some other things. Um, And you can see temporary small rises in PSA with recent ejaculations. Um, rigorous digital rectal exam, cycling, hepatitis can cause uh, increase in PSA. And there's also factors that can reduce PSA or artificially um, decrease the value, which should be considered, such as 5-alpha reductase inhibitor medications that can reduce the PSA by 50%. Androgen deprivation therapy can reduce the PSA. Um, Various assays can vary the PSA by up to 25%, depending on when their PSA was drawn, how often the equipment normalized, how old the reagents are. And you can also see small decreases in PSA with statin drug use, NSAIDs, uh, obesity, and even dialysis. Um, hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis don't alter total PSA, but hemodialysis can alter free PSA. So you have to think about that in context um, for your hemodialysis patients. Well, it seems like the pendulum has swung a little bit more towards the middle now in terms of when we should be using a PSA from we should not be using it to using it under certain circumstances. How should we be using this screening test? Yeah, and I think the most important part of PSA, and I think what it's done is it's highlighted the problem of overtreatment and overdiagnosis. But I think with any test, the most important part is to really have that conversation with your patient, the risk, benefits, and limitations of PSA. Um, And from from my opinion, I believe the most important PSA a person can get is in their 40s because there's been some great long-term natural history studies that show the median PSA in your 40s should be 0.6 to 0.7. And if you're higher than that, your lifetime risk of developing prostate cancer is very high. And if it's lower than that, your lifetime risk is very low. So I think the question that we struggle with today is how often should we get PSA? Should it be once a year, every five years? And I think using some of the natural history data can help us stratify that. The other thing is when do we stop checking 
PSA. If that patient has so many comorbidities that their lifespan is less than 10 years, because of the late nature and the slow-growing nature of most prostate cancers, the benefit of PSA probably fades away. And for those men that are 75 and have a PSA of less than 3, their lifetime risk of dying from um, prostate cancer is so low that screening probably isn't appropriate. So we have all kinds of things to help us with PSA. The old age-corrected norms, I think, have kind of gone out of style. I think the most important thing is really to start thinking about kinetics, um, how we use PSA in uh, some of those different things that we're doing interpretation. Let's spend just a couple minutes talking about the other screening test for prostate cancer, the digital rectal exam. Is this effective, and is, should we continue doing it? So there's controversy with this as well. But uh, from my opinion, from a urology standpoint, I think there's no substitute for a good physical exam. And there's been data that has been shown that um, combining a PSA with a digital rectal exam is more effective than either a PSA alone or a digital rectal exam alone. Um, I think it can real, reveal a lot of things about the prostate, including induration, nodularity, um, as well as any potential thoughts around BPH. And if you just look at digital rectal exam, prostate cancer detect in approximately 30% of individuals with an abnormal digital rectal exam. So just because they have a digital abnormal digital rectal exam doesn't mean they have prostate cancer. I think part of the controversy with digital rectal exam exists because there's no large universal agreement about what constitutes an abnormal digital rectal exam. A lot of people say, I know what normal is until I don't feel it. And so you can think the same thing when it comes to the digital rectal exam. Finally, what about prostate cancer prevention? I've gotten some patients who come in saying, you know, my dad had prostate cancer, his father had prostate cancer. Is there anything I can do to prevent me from developing prostate cancer? Yeah, it's a great point, and there's been um, several recent studies in the literature and the data about prostate cancer prevention. Probably the most publicized one is the prostate cancer prevention trial where they treated 18,000 men over 55 who had a normal digital rectal exam and a PSA of less than three, and they were randomized either to finasteride five milligrams a day or placebo, and they were followed for five years. Because remember, what we know about prostate cancer is that with androgen deprivation therapy, prostate cancers will shrink, die, and go away and go into remission, but it won't be a total cure. So potentially the thought behind this trial was if you manipulate that hormonal access locally on the prostate with minimal side effects, can you prevent prostate cancer? And what they showed in that first trial is they were able to decrease the risk of prostate cancer by 25%. Some of the initial reports came back, though, saying, well, you're decreasing prostate cancer by 25%, but you're increasing bad prostate cancer or high-grade prostate cancer to another degree. So you're selecting out a worse malignancy and maybe preventing lower-grade malignancies that don't really need um, treatment anyway. However, further analysis showed this really not to be true. The observed effect uh, that they noted in that follow-up paper was really due to a detection bias. Um, But the use of finasteride for the prevention of prostate cancer is still controversial. There was another study called the REDUCE trial, which which was detrusride and prostate cancer events trial, which was only 8,000 men. Um, But what they found there is they found less Gleason-6 
prostate cancer by about 27% and didn't change the risk of developing high-grade prostate cancer. However, with both of these trials, um, they commented that the use of 5-alpha reductase inhibitor for prostate cancer prevention did increase the risk of erectile dysfunction and decreased libido in those men, so it uh, should be uh, considered. There's been some other trials in this space, the SELECT trial uh, that looked at placebo versus vitamin E, selenium, or both of these. There's been the HOPE trial that looked at um, some of these other medications as well as the physician health study. And so when you look at these alternative medications like vitamin E, selenium, um, vitamin C, there's been no effect or influence on the detection or prevention of the prostate cancer with those other trials. So at the end of the day, there's something to this prostate cancer prevention theory, um, but at this current time, there's still a lot of controversy that goes around this issue. So I wouldn't say that it is really recommended at the current day with our current data that that exact pathway has been defined. We've been talking about prostate cancer screening with Dr. Mitchell Humphreys, chair of the Department of Urology at Mayo Clinic, Arizona. Mitch, thank you so much for your time. Great discussion. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.